Exodus 18.21 Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. Welcome to Walking Through the Book. I'm Stephen McCrary. I'm Brian Bales. And I'm Jeremy Hodges. And today we'd like to talk with you about the Bible. Specifically, we want to discuss Exodus 18 today. Walking Through the Book is all about these three things. We want to encourage Bible reading. We want to demonstrate proper and responsible study of the Bible. And we want to emphasize what the text says, no more and no less. Before we start, we do want to let you know how to get in touch with us in terms of walking through the book. You can find us on Facebook. If you search at walking through the book, you'll easily find us that way. Uh, you can also email us at walking through the book at protonmail.com. How are you guys doing today? You doing okay, Bryant? Yeah, doing very well. Yep. I'm very, uh, very excited to do the reading this morning. Very good. And you, Jeremy? Having a great time, enjoying myself quite a bit. Good deal, good deal. Go ahead and let everybody know, Jeremy, how to get in touch with you and uh, your work, just so that we can kind of get that out of the way. Well, I'm up in the just north of the D.C. area, just over the Maryland line. Um, uh, I don't think that it's often thought about that D.C. is next to two different states, but uh, there's Virginia on one side and Maryland on the other, so I'm on the Maryland side. The congregation I labor with is the Wildercroft Church of Christ, and you can find them at wildercroftcoc.org. Um, I just use my personal email. It's uh, jeremy.a.hodges at gmail.com. Uh, it is a congregation that is, uh, because it's so close to the capital, it's, we have a lot of high turnover. We have some government employees. We have some military employees, and it sure makes life interesting where I'm at. And Bryant, uh, you want to let everybody know how to get in touch with you and uh, sort of go over the flow of the program today. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm uh, working as an evangelist with the Garden City Church of Christ, just west of downtown Savannah on the eastern side of Georgia on the coast. And um, we've got a website, strivingforthefaith.org, and a Facebook page, um, which the Facebook page is just looking up uh, Garden City Church of Christ on Facebook, and you'll find it. Uh, we'd love to have you visit if you're ever passing through or uh, vacationing to Savannah. Um, it's a beautiful area, and uh, the congregation here is, is, is very, very encouraging um, if you'd like to let us spend time with you and you are in the area. Uh, and as for the flow of the program, uh, we're going to be reading Exodus 18 and if you're listening for the first time, uh, what we what we do with our with our reading is very simple, and that's really the goal of uh, the goal of our program. Like what Stephen said in the introduction, um, encouraging uh, responsible Bible reading. So we we read the the text out loud, and uh, after the reading, what we do is we have some initial observations, which really is just 
anything in the chapter or chapters that we actually read and just noticing things that either stand out as significant um, or seeing things that maybe we just haven't thought about much before and making some observations on some things that uh, caught our attention in, in new ways. And after that, we try to make some connections maybe to the overall themes of Exodus or back to Genesis uh, or even the greater Old Testament narrative. Um, there's also themes that we, we see fairly often that uh, connect to the New Testament as well, ways that we recognize uh, these narratives find their fulfillment in Christ and his teaching in the church. And at the end of every program, we try to uh, conclude with making some, some brief applications um, and trying to look at how we can think practically about taking some lessons away from, from the text as well. Uh, so that's what, that's what we'll be doing uh, today. And if you stick with the program or have listened before, that's uh, how we're trying to keep it simple and, and uh, really let the text um, teach itself in, in a lot of ways. Absolutely. As, as we are talking about, we will be looking at Exodus 18. We've kind of seen a lot of interesting things in the story so far. Uh, this one is going to be, you know, kind of a fairly quiet chapter, I would say. But I think there's still a whole lot for us to see, a whole lot of layers yeah. for us to kind of go through and, and consider. So, Exodus 18. And Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, that the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her back with her two sons, of whom the name of one was Gershom. For he said, I have been a stranger in a strange land. And the name of the other was Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help, and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness, where he was encamped at the mountain of God. Now he had said to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Then Moses went out to meet his father-in-law, and he bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had befallen them on the journey and how the Lord had delivered them. Jethro rejoiced over all the goodness which the Lord had done to Israel in delivering them from the hand of the Egyptians. So Jethro said, 
Blessed be the Lord who delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of Pharaoh, and who delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know the Lord is greater than all the gods. Indeed, it was proven when they dealt proudly against the people. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, took a burnt offering and sacrifices for God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law before God. It came about on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood about Moses from morning until the evening. Now when Moses' father-in-law saw that all he was doing for the people, he said, What is this thing you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge, and all the people stand about you from morning until evening? Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, it comes to me, and I judge between a man and his neighbor, and make known the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, The thing that you are doing is not good. You will surely wear out both yourself and these people who are with you, for the task is too heavy for you. You cannot do it alone. Now listen to me. I will give you counsel, and God be with you. You be the people's representative before God, and you bring the disputes to God. Then teach them the statutes and the laws, and make known to them the way in which they are to walk and the work they are to do. Furthermore, you shall select out of all the people able men who fear God, men of truth, those who hate dishonest gain, and you shall place those over them as leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. Let them judge the people at all times, and let it be that every major dispute they will bring to you, that every minor dispute they themselves will judge. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all these people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, leaders of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. They judged the people at all times. The difficult dispute they would bring to Moses, but every minor dispute they themselves would judge. Then Moses bade his father-in-law farewell, and he went his way into his own land. This uh, first section, you might say, second section, first section, whatever. Um, we want to really look at, you know, we call this initial observations. And it's really just kind of what do we get out of the text? You know, even just then we can kind of have some new reactions, things that you never noticed before. And this is the beauty of looking at scripture over and over is that, you know, you find things that you didn't, didn't see before. And, uh, you know, one thing I thought of here is just that I, I guess this 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 is probably going to be one of the themes that we talk about and one of the applications that we even make is this sense that, you know, being a leader, you know, doesn't mean that you have to, you know, put your thumb over everybody necessarily. Mm-hmm. 
but there needs to be some sort of driving force forward. I, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing that. Um, I'm seeing, you know, we get to know more about Moses's family in the first section there. And so that's kind of fascinating as well. Um, what did you guys see? So something, uh, I'm wondering what you guys think, you know, obviously God could have told Moses to do this, right? Like God could have told Moses to distribute his judgments between more leaders. Um, but I think it seems very evident that this at least like, and you know, unless you see it differently, it seems like this is very providential. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you guys think that there is maybe any, any purpose for, or like any lesson, um, here for why God allows Jethro to be the voice of this, this really important judgment. Like, is there anything in maybe like God's humility, um, and maybe like God's leadership? I don't know. I'm just kind of curious what your thoughts are. Um, why God allows it to be Jethro who says something that he obviously could have already have said. Verse one mentions again that he's the the priest of Midian. Hmm. So, you know, we're being told again that, you know, this person has some aspect of a relationship with God. And even to the point a priest, at least for the audience that Moses is writing for, would help us, you know, help them understand, okay, the priest is the way that I get to God. Basically, it, hmm. w- you know, for them, that that's how it would be. And so if you're asking about like qualifications or, you know, the authority Jethro has to do that, this, I I think, I kind of think that checks that box for me, but Mm -hmm. what do you think, Jeremy? Mm. I'm I'm thinking like maybe, maybe it's, it's related to God's humble nature. You know, like you, you don't, Mm -hmm. you don't, like you were saying, you don't get the sense of domineering leadership here. Right. You know, so God could be barking orders and, you know, obviously God cares a lot about Moses and, you know, in the New Testament, we're told to bear each other's burden. So God, we, I think we can clearly understand that God is aware of the burden that this is putting on Moses, but it seems like this gives opportunity for Moses and Jethro to bond. It gives us opportunity to see goodness in Jethro and God in his humility is very interested in drawing out good things in people's hearts and bringing those things to display. Uh, well, we can lessons, see, I th- we can see immediately that this is a healthy relationship between Jethro and right. Moses. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, yeah. And, and so like, you know, and I wasn't thinking of these things before answering or before asking the question, but, you know, just kind of thinking through things and thinking about what you were saying, you know, I can see how there are a lot of good things that were able to be taught here that are really valuable that maybe would not have been able to be taught if it were not for God allowing this interaction to happen this way. Well, when Moses, when Moses leaves to Midian, it's very much a, um, Jacob and Laban situation to some degree. It's, it's, it's a situation where he leaves, uh, Egypt flees it, you know, because he's a murderer, basically. That's that's what he's concerned about. Mm-hmm. And uh, 
you know, obviously Jethro is kind and compassionate enough to, to bring him in, even to the point that he, you know, allows him to marry his daughter. And, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't, you know, it's interesting too, that I guess Zipporah, no, I mean, I, that, that has to be it is that, you, know, you notice Zipporah didn't go to Egypt with Moses. It seems like she stayed back in Midian. I'm at, Am I wrong? Is there something in the previous chapters that I'm missing there? No, she. It looks like she's now. She goes to a certain point, but she only goes so far as that God is going to kill Moses because he hadn't circumcised right. his son, and she's not super happy about the fact that she has to take care of that from Moses and says so. Uh, yeah, and so she doesn't go any further than that. That's the end of her accompanying uh, Moses. It seems so. It seems like she stayed back with Dad. Yeah. Yeah. And it, what's fascinating too, though, um, two sons are there already, but the second son, Eliezer, is named such because the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. I, here's a question: Did he name that son before he left and went back to Egypt? Hmm. Well, okay, so he's he's in Midian for forty years. Mm-hmm. So I'm gonna have to say he's likely had his kids before he's called by God when he was eighty. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, he he had been delivered from Pharaoh's sword, and in Midian. Yeah. Right. 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 And it, and it seems like it's it's very interesting that he recognizes that God was the one who delivered him in his reflection of those events. Uh, yeah, you the know, God, the God of my father. Right. You know, and, and I love how he says the God of my father, not just God, Jehovah, you know, he recognizes that God is consistent. God is being faithful to promises. God is making himself known through this lineage. And so I think there's a sense of associating value to the inheritance and you know again i don't i don't mean to sound like a broken record but this is just another place where <clears throat> the film adaptations just fall flat cuz it's Amen. like absolutely you know it, it, they they all seem to portray it where he gets the burning bush he's like what god who's god and it's like no <laughs> it, he right. had some aspect yeah. some understanding of who god is absolutely. and he knew he knew of god's relationship to the hebrews and i have to right. Yeah. I have to trace that back to Jacobed. I mean, that mm-hmm. must have been where mm-hmm. he got that core knowledge. And I mean, uh, by faith, she hid Moses. So she yeah. Was, Not only yeah, that, she seems conti- like she was aware. She also continues to be right. his nurse. See, that's the thing that right. Miriam does. Right. Miriam yeah. doesn't just like follow and like keep an eye. She says this kid needs a wet nurse, and she goes oh, yeah. and she picks literally his own mother, which you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, we Providentially, talk, that was awesome. We talked about this not too yeah. long ago uh, um, in our Bible class. You know, you've got Pharaoh's, you know, dictates where he says you're going to kill all the male children. And and it kind of puts this value of the males in this kind of high place. And then it turns around that all of his dictates are overturned by a bunch of women. Uh, you've got the oh, funny. Yeah. You've got <laughs> you've got the midwives who completely ignore the order and lie about what they do. Um, you've got, you know, you've got Yochved who decides that she's going to protect the child and does, 
Uh, you've got Miriam who helps her once she does to put the child in the river. Uh, then you have the daughter of Pharaoh. So it even comes down to Pharaoh's own household. So all of his big top-down decisions are overturned by the women who were part of like the everyday grind. And it's just kind of a fascinating, kind of a humorous element. So Moses, again, like dealing with this, what I call this healthy relationship, verse 7, he went out to meet his father-in-law, bowed down and kissed him. He has a deep regard and I mean, I, I think we could easily say a love for his father-in-law. And you mentioned earlier, Jeremy, that we often, you know, we often have trouble with our, you know, in-laws and stuff like that. And people, that's a joke that people have from time to time. And I think your point about that is, is pretty well made. Well, he, he seems to be very well established in Midian. Um, he might be mm-hmm. what we would call like a Bedouin. He would probably be uh, the head over a large group. He has uh, a daughter at least. Um, he helps uh, Zipporah and her sisters. So there are daughters, plural. So he's he is a well-positioned man to be able to do a whole lot in the area. And so it is interesting that here you have this uh, this vagrant Egyptian who is a runaway who shows himself to be of character and he ends up working for dad. So really most of what Moses did for 40 whole years was a cooperation with his father-in-law. He's married right. to one of his daughters. He takes care of dad, his father-in-law's sheep. He's part of the family business. And so there is a long established relationship and you know, I know that the, the narrative sort of skips over that 40 years and doesn't give us a lot of details, but Moses, that was his life, man. I mean, he was kind of done and God interrupts that life. Sure. But in Moses mind before that, I think he just kind of figured out he was going to be a shepherd for the rest of his life working for dad. And that was all good. Right. And I think, I think, that, I think we had discussed that back in that chapter, Brian and I, because, um, you know, it, it is a sense there where he's just sort of like, well, this is, you know, this is the way it's going to be until God is like, no, you know, you got to get out of here. And, uh, you know, that, that also speaks toward his hesitancy at the time. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, there's a sense where we can sort of understand and even, you know, kind of see where Moses is coming from. Cause it's like, you know, who is he to do this? Like from his perspective, he's like, no, I, I'm I'm done with that. And I even we went so far in our conversations, Bryant, to kind of speculate that when he strikes the Egyptian, there may have been a point where he might have wanted to try to free his people at that time. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Acts, Acts chapter seven. You know, Stephen yeah. actually says in his in his uh, sermon, um, if you'd call it that that Moses uh, actually thought the Israelites would understand that he was their deliverer to fulfill yeah. the promise that was made to Abraham. Which is why it's hilarious when God comes to him and says, you're deliverer. He says, no, we already tried yeah. that. It doesn't work. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So it's, it's just fascinating. And then just, you know, uh, again, Jethro. And I mean, I, I think a lot of people have, you know, I think it's important for for men, you know, to have good relationships with their father, fathers in law. Amen. Um, I know, like, just personally, in in, in dating 
girls and stuff growing up, like I would be terrified of the father and I would try to avoid him at any point. And I think that's one of the stupidest things I ever did because the reality is that you really want to have a good relationship with, with that person, especially if you're, if your aim, let's put it this way. If your aim is to marry and to, you know, take care of this, this woman, then, uh, you want a good relationship with her parents. Amen. So anyway, it just seems like Moses and, and Jethro have that. I agree. Uh, another thing about this, I, we talked about the fact that, you know, that here you have Jethro or Ruel, and he's got this position as priest. He is obviously a man who has some influence. And I think that that sort of plays into the fact that here Moses is coming up. Moses uh, was not, leadership minded before leading the people. And here he just now inherited an entire nation of two to 3 million strong. And it takes a man who's got a little bit more seasoning. who goes, oh, okay, now, now what do you, what are you doing here? He's like, Look, I gotta, I gotta talk to the people. Right. I gotta tell them what's going on. And then he says, mm-hmm. let me tell you about this thing called delegation. <laughs> and it's, <laughs> it's this, it's, it's born of experience uh, he has obviously been dealing with people. If he's the priest of Midian, I mean, so he probably dealt with a lot of people coming to him and had to do a lot of things. And at a certain point, he's like, I just can't do everything myself. I got to have helpers. So there's, there is a wisdom of experience from a man who's been through some stuff, especially if he is the priest of Midian. And, uh, and I don't want to discount his relationship with the real God. So this isn't meant to, to, to throw any shade on Jethro at all, but it, it may be that his job as priest of Midian was to help people get close to deity, whatever that might mean for them. I don't know that Just he would, generally, I don't know that would necessarily mean that he is only, only he has a relationship with the real true God. Um, his comments about that, that he knows that Yahweh is the only real God uh, when he hears about their deliverance, may tell us that here is a man who has some understanding of the divine, but maybe doesn't have a full understand uh, understanding that God is now cultivating with his people. Yeah. Uh, verse 11. Uh, now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods. So mm, what does that mean that he, there are other gods that he tries to commune with, or I, I think that's, that's a, that's a healthy speculation, I would say. Uh, yeah, again, this isn't to this isn't to down on. It. I'm not saying he was an idolater. Obviously, he's a man who's trying to help people get right with the supernatural at some point or another. Uh, but I don't know that we can say that he has the kind of close relationship with the true God um, that that God is cultivating with His own people. That Yahweh is cultivating with His own people by well, certainly with himself. Moses, right? Well, Moses does know about the the real God, but he doesn't. They're they're okay. That's what that's what I'm saying is that Jethro. I think we can determine from the text that Jethro does not quite have the same relationship with God that Moses does. I agree. Yes, you know, but I don't so, know that I don't know that a whole lot of people did before Moses in the bush because Moses true. asks about the name of this particular peculiar God. And then in in Exodus 3 and 6, you have this revelation of God's not only name, but his character to his people being the I am God. And he even says, he says, you know, they knew me as God Almighty before, but this character and this name of Yahweh is now kind of established as my covenant name with my people from here on in. 
Mm. And so Moses is kind of taking some of that, which is kind of new knowledge to these people. There's a little bit more information about who the real God is. And he's helping even his father-in-law kind of know what's going on in the, in the supernatural. Well, I mean, this is fascinating too. That and, and there, there may be something. There's going to be something that we bring up in in just a little while in the next section that will kind of tie this to. Uh, I mean, what I would say the early church era, um, and we'll talk more about that in the next section. But um, but I, I appreciate you sharing that too because that just kind of made me think about that. But um, yeah, so. I, I do want to take a step back though, that like, I love that the first thing that we have Jethro saying once he gets there is, you know, blessed be the Lord who's delivered you out of the hand of, of, you know, the Egyptians. And he's saying in verse 11, the Lord is greater than all the gods for in the very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. Um, I, I, I love, I love that sense where he, he gets that, it's their pride that led to their downfall. And that's, that's, you know, mm. the ongoing theme that we saw all throughout right. the Exodus is right. like, this is a proud man who's trying to stand up against God yeah. and God is going to utterly destroy him and everything that, and that then he, he does. Has. I mean, he does exactly yeah. that thing. And that's, what's, it's one right. of the fascinating things about, about all of this. And, um, I know that you're kind of going to get to this, that humility is the characteristic that God is seeking throughout this whole, this whole bit. Well, you could just say humility is the characteristic that God is seeking. Right. <laughs> you know, cause uh, you just generally that's, we find that all throughout scripture. And, uh, yeah. And so with that, I'm really struck kind of throughout this, that Moses does not come off as like a type, a personality, <laughs> go get him kind of person yeah, through like yeah, yeah, any yeah. of this, you know, <laughs> like, you know, imagine he's sitting there and Jethro comes up to him and he, you know, Moses just kind of quietly says, well, because the people are coming to me to inquire of God. And you know. <laughs> I don't know why that's so funny to me. Right no, now, it, it's, a, it's a sense. Yeah. Uh, no, but, but, but and look, well, and I, well, I was, I was just going to say that like, you know, I think sometimes like it can be easy I don't know, for me, like, I feel like I'm not necessarily, like, at all a type A, like, bam, bam, bam kind of person necessarily. And it it can be easy to almost feel, like, inadequate when you're around somebody who has that kind of natural demeanor. And so I think it's, I think it is meant to be encouraging to see that here in Exodus 18, that, you know, God's leadership is exalted, not just in one kind of person that may be, like, is more naturally gifted with leadership, but God can make leaders out of people who might not so naturally be gifted with a personality or a demeanor of leadership. I think it's the story of Moses. I mean, I'm not trying to discount the thing you're talking about here, but, and and, and again, this might sound rough. Duh. What 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 I'm saying is that is a big part of what is going on with Moses. And I'm glad that you're talking about that because we have all these very false ideas of leadership. The world tells us right. yeah. all day long that leadership is is top down, you know, heavy handed, um, right. type yeah. A, yeah. and Moses is just the opposite of that. Yeah, I I I, I kind of love in verse seventeen. The first thing he says to him is like just so blunt and to the point. The thing that you do right. is not good. 
This is bad, Moses. This is bad. <laughs> the straight, yeah, the straightforwardness. And again, speaking to Moses' character, just like Bryant was saying, that's it's very true in this. Moses doesn't fight back with saying, look, I don't come over to your right. tent and tell you how to do your job. Yes. He doesn't yes. fight back right. at all. He's like, don't you know who I am? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. Cause he could, he could easily say like, listen, man, like, who do you think you are? You know, coming as a guest or like, you know, I'm, I'm the one that God has chosen for this work. Okay. You know, he could have so easily have put this off. Like, Easily, if there was something in his heart that was being inflamed by arrogance or anything like that. Well, and and there are so many different opportunities for Moses to take personal umbrage that he refuses to. Mm, uh, yeah. So many times he says, "Look, this, you guys aren't fighting with me. You're fighting with God. This isn't about me. Why you want to fight with me on this? This is, I'm not. This isn't my thing." He always, he always puts it back on where it really is because I'm only doing this out of my relationship with God, this is God's work. I'm working with him. Right. And so, so back to what you were noticing. Yes. I think sometimes we can have a wrong view of leadership that we are borrowing from the world and we can tell ourselves a story that maybe we aren't good leadership because we don't look like the world, but we need to go back to school on what God's leaders look like. Bearing the burden, you know, together, of doing this. And it's, you know, again, we'll, we'll, we'll hit on this again in the next couple of sections. So he heeded the voice of his father-in-law. He did all that he said and, uh, chose able men. And th- this is really like, this is going to be ongoing, right? I mean, because we're going to see, uh, the elders of Israel, the princes of Israel, uh, as something that is just sort of a theme that's ongoing throughout the old Testament. And I don't know, you know, when Isaiah or other authors are talking about this, again, we'll, we'll talk about it, I guess, but I don't want to move too forward ahead there. But um, but this is something that is going to be brought up in the future. So it's kind of here where we see that begin. So, so his father-in-law leaves. And I, I guess from this point on, Zipporah and his sons are with Moses. That's what I can sort of guess from this because it doesn't tell mm-hmm. us that Zipporah and his sons are leaving back with his father-in-law. So, and we don't really hear much about Zipporah at all from this point onward. Uh, right, right. Yeah, we know just that, just criticism against her or not her. Yeah, we have criticism against yeah. someone that Moses marries, who uh, is right is not necessarily yeah. a Midianite, but it seems might be Cushite. Now, that could either be one of two things. Either she could be from the land of Cush, which would be south of what we would call Egypt. Um, or it could be just a reference to the fact that she was dark-skinned, because the word Cush also means black. And so um, Moses, either either his second wife or a reference to Zipporah, it's not clear because it doesn't name her in the later narrative. I know that we can look at, at Numbers chapter 12 and see that there is a later narrative where he uh, is married to someone who is a Cushite. Um, now that garners a little bit of criticism, whether that is the particular subject, they criticize him about her. Uh, that, uh, I think it is kind of part of the narrative. And I, and I think the way that she appears is kind of a subtle part of, of that later narrative. But uh 
we don't really read much about her. Zipporah either lives and he marries a second person, which is not unheard of, but it doesn't seem like a Moses thing to do. Maybe I'm projecting. Uh, or possibly she dies along the way, and we don't have that recorded, and Moses marries a second woman. We don't know kind of any, any more that goes on. But that, that, it's, it is interesting that she is mentioned here, and that's kind of it. It's kind of the last time we really hear, hear her name. Well, I think it kind of goes back to, you know, the 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 drive of the story, right? And and this is not a misogynist statement, I believe. It's just with this story, Zipporah is sort of ancillary um, to what's going on, and that's nothing against her or anything like that. I, I think, but uh, yeah, no, because Miriam um, Miriam is is kind of featured a little bit more prominently. In this, right. even Zipporah is. There's, there's one more thing. I'm interested in what you guys think about uh, verse 12. Jethro bringing sacrifices and burnt offerings to the Lord. Mm, you know, I was going to comment on that. Meal. I forgot. Thank you. Yeah, even like eating with the elders before the Lord when he's like a full-blown Gentile. You know, it's just, to me, that <laughs> seems really significant and interesting. Well, he wouldn't be, he would not be the first, he would not be the first non-Hebrew priest to be able to have an appropriate relationship and a well-respected relationship. Mm-hmm. Um, we read about Melchizedek, of course, again, getting into the theme section, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, Melchizedek is obviously above the Hebrew of Hebrews, the original, which is Avram. Uh, due to the fact that he, uh, Avram, gives to this priest uh, a, a 10% of all of his spoils. Mm-hmm. And so you do see that there are other priests who are out there who are not necessarily from the, uh, the Levitical tribes. I would, however, put a caution on that because sometimes uh, Bilaam is thrown in along with that, and I don't think that's an appropriate um, connection. Uh, later on, we're going to uh, read about Bilaam uh, being hired by Balak, uh, uh, or no, is it Balak or Balak? No, yeah, Balak. He's hired by Balak to uh, to be a, a professional cursor, but it seems that he is more of a diviner or a um, like a magician than he is an actual priest. The way that uh, Yethro. Uh, and Melchizedek are presented. Jeremy, sometimes I got I got trouble with how you pronounce these names. I mean, I, that's supposed to be called Balak, son. And Balak. Balak and Balaam. Oh. Yeah, I was almost I wanting see. to interject and say, for, for all of us poor English speakers, that would be uh, Balaam. <laughs> so, funny story. I remember um, when I first moved back to Texas and, and I was working with a church there after have, having spent some time out of Texas. And I'm teaching the high school class. And I was talking about Baal. Um, the double A sound has a guttural stop. That's kind of a like a, a thing. And so um, so we were talking about the false god Baal. And I had done my whole class talking about Baalism and talking about the different people, like how Bell is connected to that and the, in the, in the Akkadian uh, background. And so one kind of more timid kid just like slowly raises his hand. And this kid has said like two words the entire class. And I, I said, yes. And he says, do you mean Baal? <laughs> 
And yep. I, I will never forget that. And I was like, well, it, seemed, it, it sounds like we were having two different conversations there, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. I do think it's very providential that this happens before mm. the giving of the law. Um, yeah. I right. think, you know, if this had happened afterward, it might have been a little confusing. <laughs> well, he, t- he, tells him, he tells him later yeah. on, he says, you're not going to do the way you've done it anymore. We're changing things from here on out. That's one of the things right. he says. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, new system. I was I was just going to say that, you know, Aaron being there as well, who would later be the, the new high priest is very interesting. Right. He's mentioned clearly there. They eat this memorial meal before God. We don't really read about them doing this thing, eating a meal before God, until they're ratifying the law. Mm, yeah. Just an interesting sort of sacrificial meals are a part of you know some of the narratives, and they are in significant places. You have one here, right? You have um, you have one with Samuel when Saul is being or is about to be coronated. But you have these uh, these a couple of situations where you have a sacrifice and also a memorial meal. Just sort of an interesting sort of thing. some things from the bigger picture here um what are some ties that that you guys saw i know uh there was a lot of scripture dumped in in our chat line in our uh recording program here so uh jeremy what do you think man well okay so later on when he talks about this when he in Deuteronomy his last sermon he doesn't really bring up the much the thing about the fact that this was Jethro's idea but he certainly does establish this as a statute that will continue on well after himself mm-hmm. so what you have is not just a way to alleviate Moses own um, difficulties but this idea right. of delineation uh, uh, delegation of authority within Israel continues on as well as the characteristics of the people who are to be chosen for this Moses sets up this statute later on that all the people who are going to be in this judgeship type situation will be um, to have to meet certain requirements for their personality and their character to be known this way. And so that is something that continues on after that. But it not only continues on in Israel as far as the judges, but these are supposed to be characteristics that the kings maintain. And so there are supposed to be people who... um, are against dishonest gain. They're against bribery. They are people who are looking for justice in every situation. And even later on, when you have a, um, a lot of the condemnation brought against the leadership of Israel, uh, called kings or shepherds, depending on the 
the narrative. I know Bryant was talking about Ezekiel 36, and it shows up in Jeremiah 22, Ezekiel 22. So this character of leadership is one that starts here from Jethro's uh, um, advice, but it becomes a core element to uh, how Israel runs through the whole of the the rest of their history. Right. And, you know, the princes, the leaders, the shepherds of Israel, uh, that is a common factor in the criticism of the prophets, right? Absolutely. Just, you know, you, sh- you should have been the ones, you know, I think, um, well, if we're going to Ezekiel, Ezekiel has some pretty clear things to say about that, right, Bryant? Yeah, I mean, Ezekiel, in the context, you know, it's it's very messianic and prophetic. You know, he's talking about how, you know, the bad shepherds have scattered the sheep. They've been taking advantage of the sheep. They aren't healing the sheep or bandaging them up or, you know, doing anything that a shepherd is supposed to do. They're, they're just feeding off of them. And so instead of, you know, shepherds, he mentions that he's going to appoint his own shepherd again, which he signifies as David returning and reigning forever and that this new David shepherd messiah figure is going to take care of his sheep in complete contrast to the way that the shepherds had completely failed well that's that's part of it right i mean it's it's leadership is uh, again we'll, we'll we'll discuss this more in in the uh application section but leadership is such an interesting balance sort of a balancing act you you want to have that firm decisiveness but at the same time you want to be like Moses as well where it's like you know I'm doing this for your sakes you know for your care you know not to just trot all over you and just say well this is the way that I want it to be and so you know you better go along with what I'm doing Jeremy you had some passages from the judges here as well yeah, we were just talking. I was just uh, noting that there is a quality of those people who are to be uh, helpful for. Oh no, the judges' passages. Oh, I almost forgot. Okay, okay, I have to fix that on the recording. The thing about the uh, stuff from Judges helps us to understand that these people—that is, the people of um, who were related to. Uh, uh, Jethro, the Kenite, continue to feature in the history of Israel. And so the Kenites become sort of the the name for the people who are from this area of Midian who are related. They live around Israel through a lot of times. They are connected to Israel and given a place. And so the Kenites feature uh, in Judges a a couple of times. One of the interesting places, even after Judges, that comes up in 1 Samuel is when Saul is about to destroy the Amalekites um, and doesn't do it completely, but is told to do it completely. He reaches out to the Kenites, therefore the people who are related to uh, Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, and tells them to come away from the, um, the Amalekites so that they're not killed along with them. So this particular group of Midianites, that is the Kenites, uh, kind of are around for a long time. And that was really all that was about. Well, you know, as we've mentioned, it's it's explicitly stated in Numbers 12 that Moses 
was very humble, more than all men who are on the face of the earth, which, you know, Moses is the one writing that. So there's kind of like, uh, I don't know, <laughs> but, uh, no, no, we, it is inspired scripture. And so we appreciate that, that Moses is a humble man. And as you mentioned, Bryant, you know, he's, he's going to be saying, okay, this is, you know, but I think Jethro's visit, I think what Jethro says is so essential to uh, a group moving forward together because we see that in commonality. Um, you know, even Acts 6, remember there's a complaint that comes up against the Hebrews by the Hellenists uh, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. That's what it says in verse 1. And so the 12 apostles, they summon the multitude of the disciples and they're saying, they say to them, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And I think it's important to note, and we you, we parallel back to this, these rulers that are being chosen, they're not going to be... Uh, revealing or you know making known the statutes of God and his laws that's what Moses is doing right but there are smaller matters that those rulers can take care of but if there's something they have a, have trouble you know resolving they bring it to to Moses and and I think that's that delineation the apostles were saying you know listen it doesn't make sense for us to just do everything and uh, you know it makes sense for us to make priority for prayer and for the ministry of the word. Uh, you know, right. that priority there is just something that, that, you know, we need to be striving for as well. So something kind of related to that is, is this is semi-related because this relates to, relates to thinking about will. Um, but like it caught my attention in verse 14. Um, maybe this is a translation thing. So this, this might, not be the way other uh, versions translate Jethro's statement, but I noticed that the first thing you said is, what is this thing? Um, and it's interesting that just in the previous chapter, you know, that's kind of what the people say about the manna. You know, they say, what is it? And that's why it was called manna, you know, is because of that statement. Um, it seems like the wilderness was a time to contemplate will. Um like to deeply contemplate God's will. And it seems like God was really striving to engage Israel's mind, you know, not just intellectually, but to really try to understand his nature. What is his real will for them? You know, he's already been trying to reveal his will outside of the law, but just in character. And, you know, I think thematically that relates to the prophets it relates to the parables jesus taught you know what was jesus doing when he was teaching parables he was trying to get to get people to contemplate the will of god and the nature of the kingdom very deeply um so for him to start by saying what is this thing you know kind of engages moses's mind immediately to be contemplating you know is this really something that is really God's will, which you see Jethro referencing multiple times. He says, if this is God's will, then do this. If God commands you in verse 23. Um, so I don't know if you guys have any more like thematic thoughts on how 
like maybe similar contemplations of God's will are in other places. But I found that a pretty interesting thing. Well, I, you know, he's about to reveal his will in a very full manner. Now it won't happen all at one time, but it's going to start. So here we are in 18, Moses is saying that it is his job to reveal God's will to the people through this judging. Mm -hmm. And that leads right into the fact that God says, okay, you think, you know, my statutes, I'm, I'm about to give you, the 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 oh, big download there so buddy good. you're about to get like what i want from so my people good. yeah that is so good that that would be so humbling because moses is taking on himself you know i'm the one revealing the will now jethro reveals something that's clearly god's will that moses didn't understand and then sinai there's going to be so much more that, that that yeah that that makes a lot of sense and that is extremely amazing actually seeing that I have no idea whether Moses realized exactly how, like, when you when you think about the law, um, when I teach, because we're doing an Old Testament overview class, and when I teach this, I talk about the fact that, uh, that the law was not only voluntary, that it was all-inclusive, it was conditional, uh, it, it was rewarding that there's these qualities of the law that we need to keep in mind, but the all inclusive right. nature of the law, I don't know if they really were even fathomed how deeply down into their everyday actions, the law was going to be. Mm, and so Moses right. is here just yeah. deciding between disputes. He's just dealing with problems or, or what we might say case law. And he's right, hearing right, from right. God about that kind of situation. Well, God's about to really turn this idea of law on its head for these people because they're about, I mean, this law is going to be in everything that they ever do. Jethro says, you know, they will bear the burden with you. You know, God had already commanded the Sabbath multiple times and related the Sabbath to multiple things. You know, and Jesus would talk about to the Pharisees when the Pharisees were unjustly accusing Jesus and the disciples for breaking the Sabbath. You know, he would bring to their attention that the priests work in the temple, but they're innocent. And people on the Sabbath were bringing their animals out of ditches and feeding them or bringing them to get water. And... You know, the purpose of the Sabbath progressively through Scripture, you know, as we see realized in Jesus, the purpose of the Sabbath was not just to be a lazy day where you sit on the couch and chips are on your stomach and you're kind of blinking slowly at the wall. 
you know, the Sabbath was supposed to be a day where you're relieving the burdens of the afflicted, where you're lifting what's heavy off of others. And so it's, it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And it seems like this is just another case of Jethro bringing forward a sabbatical principle. You know, burdens will be lifted if you do this. And it seems like, you know, Galatians chapter six, verse two, bear one another's burdens and, there, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. You know, God's will is ultimately always in lifting what's heaviest off of people. But it's God who really reveals how that's done and how that can be appropriately accomplished. Which is part of Jesus' invitation. He says, you guys are, you know, mm-hmm. weary and heavy laden. He says, right. you can oh. you can get rid of that weight and I'm going to give you a much lighter weight to do. So good. And so you rest. Yeah. So this is a this this certainly looks forward this idea of bearing burdens and and helping those people. And I and I don't know if Stephen's ready to move into this next section, but from a New Testament, we're already there. Okay, we're there then. We're there, man. So from a New Testament <laughs> from a New Testament standpoint, uh, there's a lot of different ways that this comes up. First of all, what you already noted yeah. is that you've got the apostles saying, well, we can't do all this physical work. We've got spiritual work to do, right, right, but it right. still needs to get yeah. done. And so we're going to have men who are chosen to take care of this. Now, whether or not we call them deacons, I mean, certainly the work that they were doing was, was diaconi. They were doing deacon work. Um, those people serve tables. There is the verb form for deacon. Um, he says later on that the deacons are a part of the church structure. So you have elders who are, it seems to be primarily focused on spiritual things and spiritual leadership and shepherding the flock. But then you also have men who are bearing the burden of the congregation in that way in serving as deacons to help things uh, go on. And and anytime we want to kind of discount the deacons and maybe say, you know, they're just the not quite elders I think we're ignoring the function that they actually do. But beyond that, as far as leadership, sometimes I think that there can be a conceit that is present with the evangelist, that he is the salesman for the church or that he is the one who is solely responsible for reaching out to new people. And sometimes that can infect congregations as well. Uh, why He's do, the one that's going to go visit all the members and take care of everybody. And, absolutely. Whereas in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, uh, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Take the things that you've heard from me in front of many witnesses and entrust these things to faithful. And it's men is how it's translated, but the word there is anthropos. It's faithful people who will teach others also. And I think that sometimes evangelists in this conceit that's present with us um, can be that we don't want to turn over control or we don't want to turn over, we don't want to entrust these things. That is, we want to bring everyone to me and I will teach them as opposed to what we're supposed to be doing, which is teaching our members so that they can take these things and teach others also. And so the trust that is inherent with delegation that Moses has to learn about. He says, look, you know, I can't handle all this stuff. I got to give this to somebody else. These people have got to do this because it's, it's, it's a shared burden. I think that us as evangelists sometimes need to get serious about entrusting faithful people who will teach others also. And, and members as well, you know, all, all the members need to have a trust for each other in these things and to understand that like, you know, 
we're all supposed to be in this together. That's not my job. I mean, you know, people make the point, and I think this is very well said when we, when we share that, you know, you look at something, well, that's not my job to do. Well, that, you know, I just don't think that's a healthy attitude about the work. Um, we all, we all share together in it. So, um, and, and now, now you're making me feel Jeremy, like this chapter would preach. So this chapter will totally preach. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think like you see that in the apostle Paul, you know, in second Corinthians eight twenty two, he's talking about the various brethren he was sending to the Corinthians. He says, we have sent with them our brother whom we, uh, we have often tested and found diligence in many things mm-hmm. and now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you, you know, and you, you see that a lot. I mean, you see it in Philippians too, with uh, the brethren mentioned that Paul was trusting to love the Philippians as he loved them. You know, that Paul had a habit of sharing and training and distributing and entrusting, you know, it's, it seems like he was in chapter eight, verse 22, you know, second Corinthians there, you know, that he had often tested this man who he mentions, which I think is giving responsibility or even just assigning some kind of task and he's proven faithful in it. And so the trust is building, uh, the character is building, the joy is building. Um, and it's, it's almost like this very subtle, almost like hidden thing in the New Testament that Paul reveals he was constantly doing actually. Uh, with different brethren. And uh, I mean, even even chapter one of first Corinthians is sort of amazing where he's talking about, you know, he he's thanking God. You know, he says in verse four, I thank my God concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you. He's not thankful for the actions of the Corinthian brethren. He's thankful for the grace of God that was given to them. Mm. And that grace of God will lead to the point where verse eight, who will confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so it's this sense where even with all the troubles and all the problems that Corinth was facing, he had a, there was an inherent trust there that, you know, I believe that God's grace can still be active within you and work, you know, not in a sense that, that that grace can lead you and teach you to do the right thing, that you will be found blameless in the day of our Lord. Um, mm. if, if Paul could say that about the Corinthian brethren, I mean, you know, you got to really think about that seriously as a Christian and say, okay, am I trusting my brethren or am I judging them unfairly or harshly and pick unrighteously, I would say, and picking them apart. And, you know, that's, that's kind of the question to ask, I think about that in our, in our application of that. Not only that, I, I as far as trust, <laughs> Think about the kind of trust that Jesus had to uh, have for the apostles. Ah, right. Because obviously they were going to continue to take these things. They were the ones who were going to announce the kingdom. They were the ones who were going to reveal what the entrance to the kingdom looked like. And when you read about the apostles, you don't really... as a human being, I don't really feel like I would trust them with much. And again, that's my problem. But he, and Jesus is much more capable of doing right. He is much more wise than I am. And yet even Jesus trusted his apostles to take these things. Well, um, so 
have a good relationship with your father-in-law. <laughs> uh, you know, <laughs> no, it's a great one. <laughs> Try, I mean, you know, that, that familial relationship is just wonderful. I, I think that does kind of go back to Moses, uh, Moses humility, but also when you see something going on, I mean, you know, Hey, maybe this is the wrong thought, but like when you visit a congregation, you know, the people there, maybe you even have family there, mm-hmm. you know, just you, you, you visit this other congregation. Is it absurd for you to make a suggestion and say, well, you know, y'all are doing this. Maybe better for y'all to do it this way. And you're not saying it from a standpoint of you're wrong and I'm right. You're saying it from a standpoint of like, well, this is what we do. Maybe it would work for you or something to that effect. I mean, is there, is there something that we could pull out of this for that? I think so. And just even listening when somebody does that, you know, like somebody visits for a gospel meeting and, you know, maybe they like, they come to garden city and, you know, see that maybe there's a, maybe even there's something being overlooked in the membership that should not be overlooked. I've had people come to our, uh, church meetings and have said a couple of things that in the wrong context would be seen as sort of uh, telling you what to do. But of course, upon reflection, I've seen that they were being kind and they were trying to uh, help and make good suggestions because they thought that there was room for improvement. And I guess we could say that it would be wrong for us to refuse that help again you know, we made the point that Moses is not saying, you know, who are you to come here and tell me what to do? Um, that's, that's pride talking, right? I mean, that's pride is going to make us say, you know, listen, you know, (laughs) you, you don't have it right. Or you, you know, something to that effect. And, uh, so those are things to guard against as well. So one, one, one last application, I think that, um, that I noticed is uh, really just verse 10 and 11 reminds me of Mark chapter five, the Legion man or the man who's possessed by the Legion demons. Um, Go back to your own household and tell them what great things God has done for you. Uh, Then later in Mark, you see the people of that place coming to Jesus in droves. Um, You know, I think there is something powerful in evangelism by just simply telling people how we've been delivered and exalting God for that deliverance. And, I think, unfortunately, it, it can be easy to lose that um, excitement and zeal. And, you know, I think the New Testament writers would write in a way to keep that fresh in the mind of the audience. I mean, even the Hebrew letter, uh, Hebrews, you know, those people seem like they had been Christians for a long time. And yet, even in that letter, he goes back to really a lot of fundamental things about the glory of salvation. And so really, it should it should never get to be something that isn't fresh on my mind to share with others. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Very well said. I was once a slave in Egypt. Yeah, amen. Right. God delivered me. Well, um, I appreciate your time, fellas. And uh, uh, Lord willing, we'll be able to be with you all again. Um, Looking at Exodus, I believe we're going to be looking at Exodus chapters 19 and 20 next time. We'll talk about that more when we come to it. Yeah, they go and, they go uh, hand in hand. I think that's a good way to do that. They really do, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, um, but we appreciate you listening, and uh, we hope that uh, it's been useful for you. I know it's been useful for me. Lord willing, we'll be with you next time to uh, continue walking through the book. Thank you. Yep. Yeah, thank you. Oh, church of God.
The music used in this program is graciously provided by Symphonia. Symphonia is a nonprofit foundation whose purpose is to compose, publish, and promote hymns for congregational worship. Find out more at symphonia.com.